Hello and welcome to the Venery Secrets Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Jones, and this is episode 29. In today's episode, I'm going to discuss how NHLer Clayton Stoner was fined $10,000 for hunting a grizzly bear without a proper license. What is Addison's disease? How to diagnose it and treat it both conventionally and naturally? Plus, I'm going to answer a listener's question. If I could use just one thing for healing a wound, what would it be? Now, Venery Secrets is on iTunes. You can go to iTunes and search for Venery Secrets. We're also on Stitcher. You can download the Stitcher app and search for Veterinary Secrets. Definitely, I would appreciate if you would subscribe to my podcast and leave a review. You can do so on iTunes or Stitcher. Let's get right into today's podcast. To begin with, we're talking about a recent news story. NHLer Clayton Stoner is fined $10,000 for hunting grizzly bear without a proper license. Stoner has never denied shooting a bear, but disputed the allegations he lied to obtain the license. So he's an NHL defenseman from Northern Vancouver Island, and I'm being fined this $10,000 of that amount, $6,000 is going to be assigned as a contribution to habitat conservation. He's also been prohibited from hunting for three years. Provincial Court Judge Brent Hoy said this case received more attention because Stoner is a hockey player. Stoner pled guilty in a BC Provincial Court just recently, that was on Wednesday in Abbotsford, to one of five charges stemming from the hunt in 2013. Stoner, who grew up in Port McNeil, that's in Vancouver Island, and he now plays for this NHL hockey team, the Anaheim Ducks, was not in court. His lawyer delivered the plea of guilty to one charge of hunting and killing a grizzly bear without a proper license on Stoner's behalf. The Crown dropped four other charges against him, including knowingly make a false statement to obtain a hunting license, hunting out of season, and unlawfully present- possessing dead wildlife. First Nations have condemned trophy hunts. Jess Husty, a tribal counselor with the Hetzlik Nation, on whose traditional territory the bear was shot, said the decision was good news, but didn't go far enough to address broader issues. You know, I really hope that it makes other trophy hunters think twice about what they're doing, she said. I'm cautiously optimistic, but I really think it just addresses one side of the coin. Husty said a coalition of First Nations made a statement in 2012 condemning trophy hunting because the practice isn't consistent with tribal laws and values. The fine does deal with the fact that Stoner didn't follow regulations, she said, but what's not addressed in this judgment and what can't be addressed in these courts is that it also contravene Indigenous law and an indigenous ban on trophy hunting in our territory. Housty said the death of the 18-year-old grizzly known as Cheeky by local First Nations guardians because it was comfortable being viewed by humans was upsetting to many in her community. We build strong relationships with our relatives in the animal kingdom, she said. To lose a bear like this, especially under these circumstances, really grieved people deeply. Stoner saying there's a misunderstanding of residency requirements. You know, BC conservation officers led to Stoner failed to meet Wildlife Act regulations requiring anyone eligible for a BC hunting license to live in the province for six of the 12 months prior to the spring grizzly bear hunt. The court heard that Stoner bought a resident hunting license on March 22, 2013, and that he shot and killed an adult male grizzly near Bella Bella on the central coast of British Columbia, taking the head and the hide. Stoner, who was a member of the Minnesota Wild at the time, has never denied shooting a grizzly, but his lawyer Marvin Stern disputed the allegation that Stoner improperly obtained the hunting permits. Stem argued that his client is a British Columbian who had who has had to work in the U.S. for his job as an NHL defenseman. He also argued that because of the NHL lockout, which ran into 2013, Stoner was probably in B.C. more than usual in the year leading up to the grizzly hunt. Um, he's contended that while Stoner may have misunderstood the residency requirements for the hunting license and made an incorrect assumption he was a B.C. resident, he did everything within the law during the hunt. Hmm. 
my thoughts. Well, first of all, it's good to see that he pled guilty and that he was fined. Um, my opinion that the fine is far too low, you know, especially for a professional hockey player. He makes more than that every game, so it's really nothing to him. And my last big point, this really should not be allowed and it should be banned. There should not be trophy hunting of grizzly bears, period, anywhere in the world. Never mind British Columbia, which is, has the highest concentration and population of these large ba- bears left in the world. So what you can do as far as having some effect is you can go to my, my website, theinternetpetvet.com, that's my blog, and you just search for the ban on trophy hunting of grizzly bears and I've got a, a link on there um, to the petition that you can sign and that's being delivered um, to the ministers in British Columbia and to the premier to at least affect you know legislation in some way because the more people we get that are signing on this that are applying more pressure to the politicians we'll get them to you know to change that the legislation and the rules and that's what's happening you know they're they're still you know agreeing to you know that certain lobby that is the hunting lobby that feels that you know that's a great idea let's still continue hunting and that's what's happening hypoadrenocorticism or addison's disease Um, in animals with addison's disease there's a deficiency of the corticosteroid hormones it is unusual to discover the direct cause of this deficiency unless the the patient or the client is taking medications that disrupt adrenal balance and some of these drugs that can affect that are ketoconazole lysadrine or trilostane and those specifically are drugs for hyperadrenocorticism or Cushing's disease. But fortunately, the disease can be managed with the administration of corticosteroid hormones, even if the cause of the deficiency is unknown. It's a little bit about these adrenal hormones. The adrenal gland is so named because it's located just in front of the kidney. Renal means kidney. The corticosteroids are the hormones that enable us and our pets to adapt physiologically to stress. So the glucocorticoids, such as cortisol and the related synthetics, such as prednisone, dexamethasone, they gear the metabolism toward the preparation of burning rather than storing fuels. So you want to be ready for fight or flight. And then there's also the mineralocorticoids. The primary one is called aldosterone. And they affect the electrolytes, sodium and potassium. So as a general biological rule, where there's sodium or salt, there's also water. When the mineralocorticoids circulate as part of the fight or flight preparation, the sodium is conserved in anticipation of blood loss, so there's going to be extra fluid um, or in the vascular compartment that spare blood. When the sodium is conserved, potassium is lost as part of the biological balance. So this whole p- picture of fat mobilizations, sodium conservation, etc., it's all part of the fight or flight preparation. And it's far more complex than just all of that. But that's kind of the basics of it. So you've got these corticosteroid hormones, and they're needed to ad- adapt to these stressful situations, along with the mineralocorticoids, which are part of the similar related thing. They're affecting electrolyte metabolism. So all those work in conjunction together because they're produced, I mean, those hormones that affect the regulation of those come from these adrenal, this adrenal gland. And they're really needed to adapt to stressful situations. So without these hormones, even small stresses can lead to physiological disaster. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about Addison's disease itself. I mean, that gland is affected. It's not typically not producing both of those sets of classes of hormones, the corticosteroids and the mineralocorticoids. So what are the clinical signs? So cl- these these dogs are typically young, four to five years old. But any dog can be affected. 
The disease does occur in cats. It's very rare. There's a genetic predisposition to Addison's disease in the standard poodle and bearded collie. Female dogs are affected twice as often as males. You know, at first the signs are very vague. Listlessness, probably some G- possibly some GI signs, vomiting or diarrhea. The pet just doesn't seem right, but not in an obvious way. And they may, may, may seem more or less normal most of the time as the symptoms can wax and wane. And this can change with stress. But ultimately, the disease results in a phenomenon called Addisonian crisis. So what's happening, your dog is collapsing in shock due to his or her inability to adapt to the caloric and circulatory requirements and stress. Blood sugar may drop dangerously low. They might present with low blood sugar. Potassium levels generally soar. They're really high. Elevated potassium, low sodium. And with these elevated potassium, it can affect the heart rhythm because there's not enough conserved sodium to exchange for potassium. Heart rate slows. You can have arrhythmias resulting. And, And some dogs actually die during this episode. Approximately 30% of dogs with Addisonian disease are diagnosed at the time of an Addisonian crisis. Also, approximately 90% of the adrenal cortex, that's area of the gland, must be non-functional before clinical signs are observed. So how do you make the diagnosis? You know, because there's numerous symptoms that can be seen with the disease, it really is a hard one to diagnose. Unfortunately, most of the time, you can look for an increase in potassium. So you're doing a blood sample, see an increase in potassium, a decrease in sodium, and that gives a pretty good good guess. But sort of spot checks of electrolytes aren't always reliable enough to diagnose Addison disease. So typically, you imagine at a veterinary clinic, you're as a veterinarian, you're presented with a young animal in shock. There's no history of trauma, toxin exposure. Typically, all of a sudden they just crash. So they've gone this Addisonian crisis, acute shock. This consists of so the treatment itself is what we're doing treatment for shock. We would treat any animal for shock. You know, where they're hit by a car, they're poisoned by some type of toxin. So it's rapid administration of fluids. Generally, the fluid is called lactated ringers, which has got very low potassium, moderate amounts of sodium, plus some glucocorticoids. Coincidentally, that's also the ideal treatment. You're going to look for Addison's disease. So typically, we're going to treat these dogs. They bounce right up. We're not really sure what happened. Often, the blood panel will come back, showing elevations in a couple of the kidney things that are measuring kidney function, BUN and creatinine. And also, with its slightly elevated potassium, might be suggestive of acute kidney disease. Um, And that has a pretty poor prognosis. But in these dogs that have Addison's, they're going to bounce right back. So that should give your veterinarian a kind of a thought of maybe it's not kidney disease or something else going on. It can also appear in unusual ways. Sometimes you've got these dogs that can't maintain normal sugar levels. So they have these present with hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, and a seizures disorder. It can be strongly suggestive of an insulin-secreting pancreatic tumor, so that you're going to wonder about, is there Addison's? Similarly, they can get a condition called megaesophagus, where they're, you know, passively regurgitating food. Underlying Addison's can be the cause. So the only definitive test for Addison's disease is a test called the ACTH stim test. And here, your veterinarian, you know, they're going to bring in, we don't need to go into the specifics of it. It's just that, you know, they've got sort of the underlying suspicions that your dog may have that based on the age, based on the presentation of your dog, and they're going to do that appropriate test. So what is the treatment? There's a couple different, there's a number of sort of basic conventional treatments. First, the first most important aspect of treatment is the replacement of the mi- missing mineralocorticoid hormones. One way to do, the, to do this is with an oral medication called, the brand is called Florinef, or fludrocortisone is the actual drug name. It's given usually twice a day at a dose determined by your by your patients, by your dog's sodium and potassium blood test levels. At first, these electrolytes are monitored weekly when the levels seem stable these blood tests are repeated every two to four times per year often with time it'll be can be found that their dose of fluorinaf needed to control the addison's disease will increase 
The increase is unfortunate as the medication is relatively expensive. Since Florinuf also has a glucocorticoid activity, terms like those steroid hormones we talked about, as well as mineralocorticoid activity, it's usually not necessary to add additional medications for treatment. Using a compounding pharmacy can be helpful in decreasing the cost of this particular medication, especially in a larger dog. Another way to treat it, there's an injectable medication called DOCP. The brand name is Percotin V. So it's injectable, similar, like injectable Florinaf. The treatment is given every 25 days. Electrolytes are measured prior to injections first, but testing can usually be t- eventually tapered to just once or twice a year. There is some feeling among veterinary experts that DOCP produces better regulation of electrolytes than does oral Florinaf. Some dogs, however, do require steroid supplementation, such as low dose of prednisone. You should be aware of atypical Addison's disease. Approximately one dog in every 42 will have a special form of Addison's disease. So of, of dogs diagnosed with Addison's, 1 in 42 have atypical Addison's. So with this disease, the problem is just limited the certain layers of the adrenal gland that produce the glucocorticoids. This creates a patient who cannot regular, regulate blood sugar normally, but who is not at risk for an Addisonian crisis. And diagnosis is still done with the ACTH stim test. Treatment consists of supplementing glucocorticoid hor- hormones such as prednisone. Often these, these dogs ultimately progress to the more typical Addison's disease complete with electrolyte imbalance. There's also a similar deficiency um, where we've got pets that have been on long-term oral steroids, you know, such as prednisone for skin disorder, for instance. Then the medication can be discontinued too abruptly, or all of a sudden let's take them right off all at once. Long-term steroid use leaves the outer layers of that gland, the adrenal cortex, with nothing to do, and no stimulation from the pituitary gland since pills or shots are providing the body with more than enough glucocorticoid steroids. So once that medication is rapidly withdrawn, then the bodies go like, okay, these adrenal glands have to work. And they don't always work. It's possible that they're atrophied from lack of stimulation. So then you can actually get an atypical Addison's disease. So the big reason why you need to slowly wean your dog off steroids if they're on them. Then there's dog breeds that originate in the Pacific Rim, such as the Akita and Shiba Inu. They commonly have elevated potassium on blood tests. So your veteran needs to be aware of that. You should be aware of that if you've got an Akita or a Shiba Inu. And then there's a disease called whipworm infection. It's been known to create a syndrome nearly identical to Addisonian crisis, complete with abnormal sodium and potassium values. These patients will have normal ACTH stim tests, but because whipworms only periodically shed eggs, fecal testing may not detect whipworm infection. If there's any question at all, especially in the early stages, just make sure your dog is treated for whipworm infection. It's a fairly simple thing to do. Uh, A couple different alternative options I want to discuss. First, commonly used herbal remedies in the treatment of Addison's disease possess adaptogenic action. In his book, Plant Medicine and Practice, William A. Mitchell, a naturopathic physician and herbalist, states that adaptogens improve your body or your pet's body ability to cope with physiological stress. Examples of herbs with adaptogenic action include green tea, turmeric, specifically curcumin, reishi mushroom, and Siberian ginseng, astragalus, echinacea, milk thistle extract, and ashwagandha. may also be helpful in treating the signs and symptoms of Addison's disease. In her book, Prescription for Nutritional Healing, a nutrition expert and certified nutritional consultant, Phyllis A. Bach states that the roots of the ashwagandha plant are 
shrub that grows in certain parts of India help replenish and stimulate your nervous system and treat stress-induced disorders. Ashwagandha also helps treat depletion of cortisol, a key adrenal gland hormone. This herbal remedy possesses anti-inflammatory, adaptogenic, and hypotensive properties. You should avoid using ashwagandha if you're pregnant, or obviously if your pet is pregnant. Now I just want to get to the last part of today's podcast, answering a listener's question. If you could use one thing for healing a wound, what would it be? Me personally, no question, honey. It helps draw out moisture from that wound and preventing bacterial growth. It's acidic, preventing bacterial growth. It makes its own, honey makes its own hydrogen peroxide, making it antibacterial. It has additional ingredients in it that are antibacterial, such as lysozyme, beeswax, nectar, pollen, and propolis. Then all these physical and chemical factors give honey unique properties as a wound dressing. It's got rapid clearance of infections, rapid debridement of the wound, so it's, it's helping eliminate that necrotic dead tissue, rapid suppression of inflammation, minimization of scarring, and stimulation of angiogenesis, that's new blood vessel growth, as well as tissue granulation and epithelium growth, clo- closing over top of that wound. So many wonderful things. And there you have it. So if, I'm, if I've got that one question in, you know, if I could use one thing for healing a wound, no question, it would be locally grown, unpasteurized, preferably dark honey. So thank you for listening to today's podcast. I hope you found it helpful. And if you have any questions or concerns, feel free to send me an email. That's at podcast at veterinarysecrets.com or leave a comment after today's blog post. I've got all the podcasts posted on my blog at theinternetpetthat.com. Once again, thanks for listening and I'll talk to you again next week. This is Dr. Andrew Jones.